Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised in the city of our God. His holy mountain, beautiful in elevation, is the joy of all the earth. Mount Zion, in the far north, the city of the great king. Within her citadels, God has made himself known as a fortress. For behold, the kings assembled, they came on together. As soon as they saw it, they were astounded. They were in panic, they took to flight. Trembling took hold of them there, anguish as of a woman in labor. By the east wind you shattered the ships of Tarshish. As we have heard, so have we seen in the city of the Lord of hosts, in the city of our God, which God will establish forever. We have thought on your steadfast love, O God, in the midst of your temple. As your name, O God, so your praise reaches to the ends of the earth. Your right hand is filled with righteousness. Let Mount Zion be glad. Let the daughters of Judah rejoice because of your judgments. Walk about Zion, go around her, number her towers, consider well her ramparts, go through her citadels, that you may tell the next generation that this is God, our God forever and ever. He will guide us forever. You've heard the word of God. Now let's ask God's blessing on the reading of this word. Will you pray with me? Open our eyes, O Lord, that we might behold wonderful things in your law. By your Spirit, reveal to us the truth. Convince us that it is a truth to be trusted, to give us faith, and help us not merely to be doers of this word, but to be hearers of this word, but doers as well. For we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Please have a seat. There's one Sunday a year where people come to church wide awake and get hungry. And there's one where they come sleepy but don't get hungry. Can you guess which one that is today? Well, we won't let you get hungry, but um, we will look once again at one of the metaphors that the Bible uses to describe the dwelling place of God's people. You have heard uh, in the series that I've been doing with you about the church as the bride of Christ, the church as the city of God, uh, the church as the body of Christ, and the church as the mother of all who believe. And today's psalm mentions two metaphors, one we've already heard a bit about, the city of God, but it also speaks of the mountain of the Lord. And so we want to look to what this says about God's people as a mountain in which he dwells, and so that we might continue to understand more and more who we are as the people of God, but also learn to love more and more the church as God has made it. Some time back, I heard a guy say, I don't go to church, church goes with me. I can worship God fishing, working on my car, or just sitting on my front porch. Well, in a certain sense, it's true. God is everywhere. But in another sense, it's not true. You can't worship God the way he has commanded. Uh, This is the background behind this idea of God's dwelling place as his holy mountain. 
Because in the ancient world, just like today, people felt like mountains were special places. And you've had that feeling, haven't you, when you've gone up on top of a high place and you've seen how close the sky feels and, uh, and you feel closer to God. I see, Jess, I think of that, that, that poem, I slip the surly bonds of earth and touch the face of God. Flyers feel that when they go high into the sky, as Sonny would know as well. What is it that makes people feel closer to God when we're higher in elevation? Well, whatever it is, it's something that ancients shared. So that as you, tra- as you would travel around the ancient world, you would find that on the high places, there were places where people set up altars to worship God. But in the Old Testament, this is a problem because God had chosen one place for him to be worshipped. And he was the one God which God's people were to worship. And they were not to worship the gods of the nations at these other high places. What is it that the mountain of God teaches us about who we are as the people of God? I want us to look at what God says about his holy mountain so that we could understand who we are as his church. So that as the uh, psalmist says elsewhere, uh, the Lord loves the gates of Zion more than any other dwelling place. That we would see that still true today, although true about us as the followers of Jesus Christ, his body. So let's look together and see what's so great about Mount Zion in the Old Testament that teaches us something about what's so great about the church today so that we won't think that church goes with us, but rather that we'll think that we go to church. So first of all, this psalm's going to teach us that what is great about God's holy mountain is it has a great God. It has a great God. Look at the first three verses. It says, Great is the Lord, and greatly to be praised in the city of our God. That's Jerusalem. But where is Jerusalem? His holy mountain. Beautiful in elevation is the joy of all the earth. God established His presence in Jerusalem, which was on Mount Zion, And it is called great. But why is it great? Now, if you've ever been to Jerusalem, uh, you may have seen or else been told that Mount Zion, where the temple was, was, is not even actually the highest mountain within the circumference of Jerusalem. So, And if you come from Colorado, or if you come even from from, Jerusalem, the Appalachian Mountains, you know that the Mount Zion is not that great of a mountain as people count mountains. It's higher than Mount Dora. (laughs) You've seen that bumper sticker, I hiked Mount Dora. There's not much to that. It's higher than that, but it's on the scale of the world's mountains. it's, It's modest to say the least. But what makes it great? Because God is within her, verse 3 tells us. This is lesson number one about what's so great about the church is God is in her. And you might be wondering, why do I talk about Mount Zion and then apply it to the church? Well, 
We've been there before when we talked about the city of God, but the writer of Hebrews in chapter 12 is very clear that when Jesus Christ entered into the presence of God, that by faith in Him, the writer of Hebrews says in chapter 12, verse 22, we have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, to the assembly of the firstborn, to the myriad of angels, to the souls of the righteous made perfect. You see, what earthly Zion was intended to signify was the ultimate Zion, which is the dwelling of God's people with God in His presence in and through His Son, Jesus Christ. And I don't know if you've ever noticed it before, but if you flip through our hymnal, you find all these hymns that talk about Zion, and without blinking and even without air quotes, sing of the church of Jesus Christ. Glorious things of thee are spoken, Zion city of our God. That's from Psalm 87, and it's about the church. Uh, I love your kingdom, Lord, the house of your abode. It's about the church. And the last verse says, Sure as thy truth shall last, to Zion shall be given. Uh, another hymn, I'm, I was just flipping through uh, the hymn, though, Zion founded on the mountains is about the church. And, uh, O Zion, haste your mission high fulfilling, which is a call to fulfill the Great Commission. That's about the church. And did you ever wonder why our hymns can sing about Zion and be hymns about the church? It's because of this. Now, it is true that many people care more about a stone building in Jerusalem being rebuilt than they do about the church of living stones being built as a house for God of a priesthood from all nations. But that should not be our interest. Our interest should be the priesthood of all nations in the house that God is building out of living stones. And when you were a child, probably in Sunday school, if you were raised in Sunday school, you probably heard the lesson. The church is not a what? A building, but it is people. And that's exactly what Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 2. We are living stones being built up into a house for God. But there's nothing special about us except what was said of Old Testament Zion. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. Psalm 46, Luther's favorite psalm. So what's so great about Christ the King Presbyterian Church? Well, you do have great ushers. I'll have to say that. You always get a good story on the way in. You have friendly people. You love your children. You have beautiful music. And there are a lot of good things that you could say about Christ the King, Presbyterian Church. And they would all be true, wouldn't they? But if somebody runs up to you on the street and says, Tell me about Christ the King Church, what are you going to say? You say, God is in the midst of her. By His grace, by His favor, not because we're special, but we're special because God's special. And, 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 and this is as true to, of the church today, even more true than it was of the mountain of God in the Old Testament. Was God omnipresent in the Old Testament? Was He present everywhere? Yes. And He's omnipresent today. But even though He was omnipresent in the Old Testament, there was a place where He was especially present. In his immediate covenant faithfulness presence. 
And that is the promise that his church has today. At the, on the day of Pentecost, the Spirit of God was poured out upon the church. And it looked like the glory cloud of the days of Moses. Because the glory cloud was a signifier of the presence of God in the Spirit. And John's Gospel tells us, Jesus' words, that that we now worship God in the Holy Spirit and in truth. That we are a temple of the Holy Spirit, Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and chapter 6. So what was true of the mountain of God in the Old Testament is now especially and even more so true of the church of Jesus Christ. What's so great about Christ the King Presbyterian Church? God. And God promises to meet with His people where the Spirit of the Lord, there is freedom. If two or more of you gather in my name, there I am in your midst. And all the promises of God to be especially present in the worship of His people when they gather together in His name. You can worship God working on your car, fishing. In fact, all things we should do, we should do as acts of worship. But you can't worship God the way He bids us to worship Him in His church unless you gather to His place where His people are. That's one thing that's great about the church. Now, there's more. The church just doesn't have a great God. It has a great salvation. If you look at verses 4 through 8, you'll see this. For behold, the kings assembled. They came on together. As soon as they saw it, they were astounded. They were in panic. They took to flight. Now, this could be describing one of many instances in the Old Testament where foreign nations came against Jerusalem and against Mount Zion. And what's described here is as soon as they began to attack, they fled in terror. Why? Because God is there and not just generically present, but He is present in His covenant promises, and He is a great defender of His holy mountain because He is a great defender of His people. And so trembling took hold of them there, anguish as of a woman in labor. You can imagine the foreign army saying, let's get out of here. And God would allow armies to come to the gates of Jerusalem from time to time to turn the heart of God's people back to Him. One of the principal examples of that is in the days of Hezekiah, where the Assyrian army came to the gates and um, they began to speak in Judaic, uh, in, in, in the Hebrew tongue. And Hezekiah asked them not to because the people would be, were terrified. And Hezekiah repented on behalf of the people. And as he went, he went to bed that night with the fields around Jerusalem filled with the Assyrian army, and he woke up in the morning to what it looks like after the carnival leaves town with the tumbleweeds and scraps and remnants. God, the Lord of hosts, came in the night with his holy army and drove the Assyrians away. There's a really funny story about uh, two lepers who were picking through what was left behind, and they said, you know, this is a day of good news. It's not right that we keep this news to ourselves. God is a great defender. Jesus said, I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. 
you have the the image here of a of a of a fortress of a mountain under siege, a mountain fortress under siege, but God defends it. Now, we don't live in a day of siege battles, uh, but it makes me think of Masada. You know the the infamous uh, last stand of uh, Israel against the Roman Empire uh, near 70 A.D., where the 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 last. Uh, resistors fled to the mountain fortress of Masada, and they tragically e- eventually took the lives of all inside rather than surrender to the Romans. In American history, you have the Alamo, where uh, the last stand is made against uh, insurmountable odds. You know, siege warfare doesn't work unless the cavalry comes to rescue or unless the city, the fortress, has the wherewithal to fight back. But God's holy mountain has the wherewithal because it has the Lord in its midst. And God comes to the salvation of his people as a mighty warrior. How has God done that for us in Jesus Christ? Well, in John chapter 12, when Jesus was preparing to go to the cross, he said, just as Moses this lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. But he said in that context, so must the ruler of this world be cast down. See, Jesus went up to the cross to throw down the prince of this world. Colossians 1 tells us that when Christ was uh, raised, he put to shame all the powers. Whenever you read the Gospels and you see Jesus commanding demons to leave, and they obey his voice. We see his power over sin and evil. He healed all kinds of diseases, the Bible tells us, because he had authority over everything. Even the wind and the sea obeyed him. And so we are safe in God's holy mountain. And uh, this was... uh, I know you had a Reformation 500. Uh, there's a little bit of uh, mentioning the Reformation 500 this Sunday, sort of like bringing turkey out the week after Thanksgiving, perhaps. Perhaps you've had enough. But um, uh, one thing that is often forgotten in the remembering of the Reformation is how those reformers, Calvin and Luther, and all those who revived the biblical faith and salvation by grace alone through faith alone. Not one of them thought that you should find God outside of his city. That they all understood that salvation was to be found, that the grace of God was to be found in the church that he had established. Next Sunday, you're going to come to this table and you're going to receive a grace that you do not find outside his church. And when you come to church every Sunday, you hear God speak through his word in a way that you will not hear him speak elsewhere. Luther believed this mightily. He never imagined a day when people would say, I don't go to church, church goes with me, or else we'd had another sola, and I've already spoken to you about that on a past Sunday. You are baptized into the church. You know what Luther made of baptism, remember? When the devil would come after him in a big way, Luther would scream at him, I am baptized. Not because he believed the water ipso facto or de facto gave him a safety, but he he believed in that visible word of God 
as to what God believed about him. When we believe the word of our baptism, we're believing God's promises. That we are not our own, we are the Lord's, and we've been bought with a price. And that Christ is our king, and he will defend us and preserve us. That nothing will separate us from the love of God which is in Christ, neither famine, peril, persecution, hardship, or sword. It is very hard for people of our age, and I speak collectively here, to believe what the Apostles' Creed says. I believe the church. But this is precisely what the fortress metaphor would have us believe. The church has a great salvation. Don't be like an orphan sitting outside the gates of a prosperous city while there is feasting and joy and happiness inside just so you can have your independence. Isn't it a shame that so many people choose to be poor and hungry when there is riches and food and joy and happiness just on the other side of the wall of God's fortress? Don't choose to have a little swim in the days of Noah outside the ark. (laughs) An image that throughout church history, has been used to describe the church of Jesus Christ. Be safe within the ark to be delivered through the flood of God's judgment. So the church has a great salvation. We come and sing about it, don't we? Every Sunday, does it get old singing about what God has done for us in Jesus Christ? No. And when we come to the church to celebrate Uh, God's graciousness, we receive the encouragement and strengthening that that great salvation provides. So the church as the mountain of God has a great God and it has a great salvation. Well, what does that put on us then? Well, we're going to see the last thing that this psalm says to us is the church has a great story that it must tell. It has a great story it must tell. Look at verse 9. We have thought on your steadfast love, O God, in the midst of your temple. We thought about your covenant faithfulness to us. As your name, O God, so your praise reaches to the ends of the earth. God, from your holy mountain, the whole earth is to hear our worship. In other words, we don't just worship for ourselves, but we worship so that others will hear and know the Lord. Your right hand is filled with righteousness. Let Mount Zion be glad. Let the daughters of Judah rejoice because of your judgments. So God's praise is to reach the ends of the earth as he is worshipped on his holy mountain. But it's more than that. If you look at verses 12 and 14, it goes on. Walk about Zion, go around her, number her towers, consider well her ramparts, go through her citadels. Now, here you have an image of a tour group arriving in Jerusalem. And they get off the bus, and the tour guide says, well, you can't check into the hotel yet, but while we wait for check-in time, we're going to walk you around and show you some important places. You know, if you've been to a tourist site like that, you've had, probably had such a tour. And so as the, as the tour guide walks God's pilgrims around his holy mountain, he reminds them of things that God has done at these places, Walk about Zion, number her towers, meaning uh, de- defense towers. 
So, and perhaps even detailed battles come to light, just as if you go to a place like Gettysburg or, or Bunker Hill or, or even the, the beaches of Normandy. You hear the heroics, but here you don't hear the heroics of individual warriors. You hear of the heroics of God on this tour. Go through her citadels. Why do all that? For nostalgia's sake? No, the last part of verse 13 tells us that you may tell the next generation that this is God. You see, there are two audiences of this story that the church must tell. It's to tell the nations, but it's to tell the next generation as well that this is God, our God forever and ever, and He will guide us forever that He is a God who has been faithful in the past, and He will be faithful to us in the future on His holy mountain. The church has a great story it must tell. It must tell it to the nations. And the Psalms are full of language like this. Uh, John Piper famously wrote a book on Psalm 67, Let the Nations Be Glad. Uh, but you perhaps may even be, think, uh, Glenn's thinking about Thanksgiving. Some of you are already thinking about Christmas and perhaps even Handel's Messiah. And the song from Isaiah 2, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord. Come, let us go up to the God of Jacob. But this isn't the voice of Israel, God's covenant people. This is the voice of the nations saying these words in Isaiah 2. That he may teach us, come let us go up to the mountain of the Lord. That he may teach us concerning his ways. And that we may walk in his paths. You see, there's this vision in Isaiah from the beginning to the end that periodically comes up where the nations are going to stream to God's holy mountain. They're going to abandon all their other Mountains, because there is one mountain in the world that matters, and it is the Lord's mountain. And we are in such a blessed place in history of those who have seen now for 2,000 years that happening. That the nations, since the, since the ascension of Christ and the giving of the Spirit to the church, that the nations have been coming to God's mountain. Heard a wonderful story a couple of weeks ago from one of my students from China. He's an underground church pastor. And he said, there is a Luther 500th celebration taking place in Hong Kong. And pastors and church leaders from all over China were traveling to Hong Kong to celebrate and to learn about grace alone through faith alone on the merits of Christ alone, as revealed in Scripture alone, to the glory of God alone. And he said, but there was a a pastor in one city, he mentioned the city to me, uh, I won't mention it, but he said there was a pastor in one city who was on the plane ready to leave for Hong Kong, and the authorities pulled him off the plane, took him down to the police station, and put him in a cell and was holding him there without any charges. And so the other pastor and the people of the church heard about this. Well, they went down to the police station. What do you think they did? Did they walk in there and demand their rights? 
They walked inside the courtyard of the police station. They began to pray and to sing hymns. And after about a day, (laughs) the police captain brought their other pastor out and said, Here, leave! Get out of here! The last thing you want when you're a police captain, a police commander, is for somebody up the food chain to find out you've got problems. So they're singing and they're praying. Freed him. And that is to be the effect of the worship of the church wherever it meets, is that singing and praying is to bring freedom to those who hear. But it's not just about the mission of the church to the nations, but it's the mission of the church to its children. Walk about Zion, go around her, consider well her ramparts, go through her citadels, that you may tell the next generation that this is God. One of the most devastating effects of contemporary culture the last, I'd say, 40, 50 years has been the generational segregation of the church. And we didn't start this. It's the product of marketing. Uh, You you may have noticed over your lifetime, uh, breakfast cereal used to be sold to mothers. Now it's sold to four-year-olds because generational segregation has been an extremely successful thing. But you see what's happened to the church. The church has to be replanted every six and a half years for every generational micro-slice. Why? Because my generation, the baby boomer generation, began teaching people that if it's not church on your own generational terms, it's not church. We have for 50 years taught our children that the most important group in the world is your peer group. I saw a tweet from uh, Senator Ben Sass of Nebraska. He was quoting a school teacher he had just talked with uh, last week. And it went something like this. He said, the school teacher said, I know the high school kids think the most important group of people in the world is their peer group but they really don't know how cruel and fickle uh, their friends are. Um, The church is to be the place where uh, parents and grandparents and the aged, those who have no children, have children in the church. I grew up in that kind of a church. There was an 80-some-year-old sexton of the church. He wore overalls bib overalls to church. I thought, man, I wish I could have a job where I could wear bib overalls to church. His name was Bosky Sawyer. I don't know what his real name was, but probably nobody knew. Bosky. And he, when I was about eight years old, began to let me to pull the bell rope on Sunday mornings. And he'd always say, lean down and say, now don't pull too hard, you'll flip the bell over. So what I did was I pulled too hard and flipped the bell over. And so Bosky on Monday morning would have to climb about a 60-foot ladder into the belfry of the church steeple and flip the bell back over. And I just, I remember probably my earliest remembrances of prayer, oh, Lord, don't let Bosky die on my account. But it was well worth it from his standpoint because to give an 8-year-old a chance to ring the church bell, that was really something. And then uh, through the church um, entryway into the sanctuary, there was a man named Charlie Matthews, and he looked like Walter Brennan, sound like him too. 
I don't remember that he walked like him, but, um, but Charlie would grab every child by the hand and say, Hey, old timer. And sometimes he'd shake sideways. But one thing he'd often do is he'd hold on, and he'd, but he'd say, Now let go, let go. But, and you'd be all Lucy, but he was holding on. It was just a big joke from Uncle Charlie. They all called him Uncle Charlie. We knew an Uncle Charlie at Orangewood when we began to attend there in uh, the early 90s. Uh, Uncle Charlie had been a, he was in his 70s then, would go to Czechoslovakia every summer with Richard Pratt to do evangelism on the subway. But Uncle Charlie uh, had been a cheerleader at Florida State, I don't know, back in the 40s or something. Uh, and all the children of the church, there were more children at his funeral, I think, than grown-ups. See, don't, um, don't let children's interest or apparent interest level decide <laughs> who they spend their time with in the church. They are watching. They are remembering. They, and they will remember uh, the stories that you tell them about God's faithfulness in your life, but also the faithfulness of God to your church and the faithfulness of God to his people. I mean, that's really what gospel transmission is all about, is making sure the next generation understands the goodness of God, the grace of God, the salvation which is ours, and that God has given them an earthly mother, as I shared with you last time I was, I was among you. Well, so the church has a great God, has a great salvation, and it has a great story it must tell both to the nations and to the next generation. I had occasion during the early 2000s to travel to Buenos Aires several times, working with uh, Presbyterian churches down there, and the main church was 150 years old. But in their 150 years, they had only had one pastor from Argentina. (laughs) Every other pastor had come from Scotland and spoke proper. Um, And in that 150-year-old church building, which is just a block or two off Plaza de Maggio in the capital district of Buenos Aires, you would find the portrait of every minister who had ever served that church in 150 years. And they'd never had a Spanish-speaking pastor. And I was going through the church with one of my pastor friends from down there, and he was uh, a Spanish-Argentine. And the church was looking for a pastor. And, and, And Julio, my friend, leaned over to me, and he said, after the grand tour, he said, this church really doesn't want a pastor. They want an archaeologist. Somebody who will be a curator of their history. But you see, what he was describing was a church that was worshiping its history rather than trying to tell its story. And there are, there's a time in our life where we sometimes begin to look at the past in a more nostalgic way and wish things that were the way they once were, the good old days which were never good, Um, except with the passing of time. But you see, uh, God gives his church to each generation for the very purpose that they will give it away to the next generation. And this is God, our God, forever and ever, and he will guide us forever. Let's pray. 
God, help us to love your holy mountain, the place of your abode, which you have founded in the rejected cornerstone of Jesus Christ and now are building up into a house for God with living stones. Help Christ the King Presbyterian Church, even as it uh, hopefully anticipates a new chapter in the near future, to be resolved to treasure you above all of its gifts, to uh, treasure and celebrate your salvation as its chief boast, and to uh, find ways to tell the nations and the next generation that this is God. We pray it in your son's precious name. Amen.